Good morning. Good to see you this morning as we gather together to worship the Lord. And how true it is, all we have is Christ. Without Him, we have nothing. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter. We'll be continuing our, our series in 1 Peter chapter 3. And our text will be found in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Let's read. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So in our study of 1 Peter, as we're moving through rather slowly, as there's multiple months in between services, we'll start by way of introduction again, do a little bit of recap, especially at this point, because in our text this morning, as we can see, Peter's wrapping up this section. So I think it would be beneficial for us to consider what has been going on and what it is that Peter is, is wrapping up. We are seeing that God, in, in our study so far, that God is instructing Christians to conduct themselves in all relationships and areas of life, and especially during hardships and sufferings. For these are sure to come. And we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is becoming of bearing the title of being His children. You see, Peter calls them elect exiles in chapter 1, verse 1, meaning that they are foreigners in a land and were made such by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which in turn transferred their inheritance from an earthly temporal treasure to a heavenly one. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Peter states, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed the last time. Therefore, so because of this salvation, Peter states in chapter 1, verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So because of this salvation, because of this inheritance, prepare your minds for actions and set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to some Christians who have been scattered and are undergoing persecution and suffering for their faith, and in some cases quite severely so. 
Peter's intent is to encourage them on how to live in the midst of this hostile society, how to conduct themselves in a world that is opposed to their faith. As MacArthur notes, generally Peter tells them to sort of elevate themselves and turn toward their living hope in Christ. In other words, get out of the world mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and focus on what is eternal, what is heavenly. Keep your mind on the eternal Christ. Keep your mind on his glorious future for you and on his glorious resources. And don't get caught up in the fuss down here. Get your focus upward. End quote. And as with Peter's readers, this is our focus. This is our aim. To look beyond the trials of the here and now and set our sights on the glorious inheritance This letter is filled with the hope and encouragement for those who, due to their Christian faith, face these trials of various kinds. But Peter has also made much effort to provide instruction then for the believer. Much effort to provide instruction for how we ought to live in the midst of this culture. This culture that hates God, that is opposed to God and His system and His values. So then, as Christians, our conduct is to change in this life due to our salvation. Our conduct in this life is then to be different because of our salvation. Remember when we read the uh, first, or verses 3 to 5, and then in verse 13, therefore. So because of this salvation, this hope that we have, therefore prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded and set your hope on Jesus Christ. So our conduct is to change to reflect that eternal state that we now long for as God's children, to follow Christ's example. And how so? First, as we saw, and we'll, we'll do a brief survey here of the first few chapters of, of 1 Peter. First, we are to remember our great salvation that we just read about in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Then what flows from that Therefore, before God, we are to be holy, even as God is holy. Look with me at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like the lamb without blemish or spot. So again, we are to conduct ourselves and be holy because of this salvation. We are to be obedient to truth. Chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. If you notice here, when we were preaching through this section of the text, we were looking at the different concepts that that Peter is using here, or the different tools that he's using. 
the indicatives that he's using, the truth statements. He keeps referring to our salvation. And then the imperatives, the commands. So because of your salvation, then do this. Because of what Christ has done for you, do this. And we see that throughout his letter, and we're noticing that here, especially again. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed. So he continually reminds us of our salvation. And because of that, we are to put off the behaviors of this world. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Again, referring to our salvation. And because of this, put off these things of the flesh. Before the world, we are to live an honorable life, one filled with good deeds. Roman, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you, or against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we see his, his building up with these commands of how we are to live, to live holy, to put off evil deeds, to put on good deeds, to conduct ourselves in this manner because of our salvation. And then he gives us clearer instruction. As citizens, we're to submit to civil authorities. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor's supreme or the governor's sent by him. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. As servants, we are to do good, even if it means patiently suffering mistreatment. In verses 18 to 25 of chapter 2, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. We are also to live in such a way in our workplaces as servants. And not only if our treatment is fair, but even if we are being treated unjustly. Peter says in verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile, speaking of Jesus as our example. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. As wives, in chapter 3, be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 7, he speaks to husbands, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And finally, as we saw in our text, the conduct of the church is to reflect this unity and love. So we see in these chapters leading up, in the, in the passages leading up to our text this morning, the focus that Peter has 
had so far in this epistle to bring our attention to the glories of salvation and to this work of Christ that he has wrought in the heart of each one who believes and how that then ought to be the fruit that is what what comes from that life. How we then live. And now he's wrapping up this section. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So I've entitled this sermon, Living a Godly Life. Living a Godly Life. And I've divided the text this morning into three points. The first point in verse 8, the command. The second point in verse 9, the contrast. And verses 10 through 11, where he quotes Psalm 34 that we read this morning, the context. So the first point, the command. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Our text this morning begins with the term translated as finally, indicating the end of the portion of instruction from the Apostle Peter. All of you indicates that Peter is now addressing all in the Christian community. Having previously addressed individuals as citizens, as servants, as wives and husbands, Peter again is addressing everyone in the church here, finally, all of you. It is not to a specific person or group, it is all of you. So all that were in the church are to listen. And he is addressing them with an implied imperative which he is now going to elaborate on. Just as he has instructed the aforementioned individuals how to live and conduct themselves in specific situations and relationships, he is now instructing all believers in the church to live with these godly virtues, having unity of mind, having sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These are the virtues with which he's instructing the church to live. This is the fruit and that what should come out of this salvation that God has so graciously given us. And so we start with the first virtue, unity of mind. So the command is to have these. This is the instruction for the church, to have these. And so this is the standard that Peter has set that we as Christians are to pursue. Number one, unity of mind. Or could also be translated as like-mindedness or harmonious. The idea is of unity of purpose rather than complete uniformity in thought. You see, Christians will often differ in areas of opinion and even certain doctrines or practices within the church, but believers are to live in harmony together, maintaining a common commitment to the truth that produces an inward unity of heart towards one another. You see, differences may exist, but to have a common purpose that the church is to have. The church cannot be divided into moving into multiple different directions. And so Peter is telling the church to have a unity of mind, to have... (coughs) Excuse me. To have a unity of purpose in what we're doing. Romans chapter 12... Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Verses 4 to 8. 
So Romans 12, starting in verse 4. For as in one body, speaking of the church here, as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Jump to verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. We have many different gifts and strength in the body, but we are to pursue unity within the body for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. This is the testimony of the church in pursuing unity. And in Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Chapter 2, Paul continues in Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And to just really bring this home, John chapter 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only. So he's speaking of sanctification here. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. In verse 17, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He has sent the believers, his disciples into the world. In verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And then he goes on in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus is not just referring to the believers and the Christians that, that were at that time saved, but all that would through the ministry of the disciples come to know Christ, which would include each one of us here today that are saved. If we have Christ, Jesus here is praying for us in his high priestly prayer. And he says in verse 21 that they... Believers may all be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. Believers are to be one in Christ, and this unity of mind, this like-mindedness or harmony, should be visible within the body of believers. And though there may be differences and variances, the church sets its course, and that is the path that it takes. And the believers that are gathering together and belong to that church and are, are together in worship must have a common goal of unity to build the church and to bring the gospel out. We see the conflict and damage that division does to the church, to the community, to believers when the bickering overtakes the message of the gospel. And so what Peter is telling the church is to be like-minded in purpose and to pursue as much as possible to pursue peace with one another in that purpose and to be together as a church body because in that, in our lives and in that unity, in that oneness that we have with each other and with Christ, and Christ has with the Father, we bear testimony to the power of this gospel that we profess. If we are able to overlook things of disagreement in our own lives, in our own hearts, to pursue the goal and the common purpose of the church, and that which Christ has laid out in His Word, that should be the point where we go to. Whatever the Lord has put out in His Word, as the purpose of the church, that is where we are to be united in. To not be divided in those areas, but to be united of mind. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, starting in verse 42, we see the disciples and the testimony that their lives were in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they, the disciples, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we see the witness that this unity that the body of believers has in a sinful world around us. And that takes us to our next virtue that Peter highlights in this verse. Sympathy. The next virtue that Peter instructs the church to have. Sympathy. This is a term used to describe the sharing of a variety of feelings and emotions and could also be translated as compassion. R.C. Sproul comments on this phrase, the idea here is not so much one person feeling sorry for another. The etymology of the word is more specific. To have compassion is to share common feelings. I feel your pain. 
has become a trite expression in our day. However, the ability to feel another's pain and joy is what we are called to do. This is what this word speaks of. The ability to feel another's pain and joy. And then he quotes Romans chapter 12, verse 15, where Paul writes, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Christians are to be united in truth. We are to be united in truth, but they should be ready to sympathize with the pain of others. Even those we do not know. And as stated in one commentary, like Christ, the sympathetic high priest, they, Christians, must share in the feelings of others in their sorrows as well as their joys. Believers must not be insensitive, indifferent, and censorious, even toward the lost in their pain of their struggling anxiously with issues of life. We are to be sympathetic. We are to have sympathy, to have compassion. As Christians, we often share the joy of others. But likewise, we also ought to feel the pain of others, especially in their time of suffering and loss or persecution. For we too have a great high priest who sympathizes with us. We see in Hebrews chapter 4, In Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our needs, with our struggles. For he too was tempted, yet he is without sin. The third virtue that we see in this list of five is brotherly love. And here we come to what could be considered the apex of these godly virtues that Peter is describing. Brotherly love or having a mutual affection. So if we look at our list in our Bibles going back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, you can kind of see this list and we have five virtues. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And right in the middle of those five, the center is brotherly love. Now, we see the outer adjectives, and this is what we consider, and we've spoken about before, and I know Pastor Mike has addressed it as well. But what is considered in, in, uh, the, uh, in language a chiastic structure, really using phrases to point to kind of the main point. And so when we look at this list here, this list of five, we see the outer adjectives, that we see in this list. The, so on either end, we have unity of mind and a humble mind. Emphasizing an attitude of the mind. And then as we move in on that list, we have the middle two adjectives, 
which are sympathy, which we looked at already, and a tender heart, focusing on compassion. And then in this structure, we have brotherly love being the central term, which should not surprise us as we consider Peter's previous verses in 1 chapter 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And also in chapter 2 verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So we see Peter has a big focus on this term and this concept of brotherly love. So what, what is it then? If this is the apex of this list, if this is the, the central theme in this verse, then what is it? And here, brotherly love, the word translated as brotherly love, refers to affection among people who are closely related in some way. So to quote R.C. Sproul again, the family is the chief metaphor that the Scriptures gave for the church. God is our Father, and we are His adopted children. If Christ loves you, and you are in Christ, and Christ loves me, and I am in Christ, then what could possibly be more natural than to have at the bottom of this pyramid a connection of love between us? We should love one another if for not other reason, if for no other reason than that we share the same Father. End quote. So as Christians, we often, and rightly so, refer to each other as brothers and sisters. We refer to other believers as our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is because we are part of the same family. If you are a brother in Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are a brother or a sister. We are siblings who share a mutual father who is God. And this should be evident then in the way and in the love that we share with one another. So this brotherly love then that should come from that should be natural. And like in any family, it can be harder to love siblings, maybe some days more so than others, depending on what has happened. But the natural response in a family is to have love for one another. There is a closeness, a fellowship, and a bond that siblings have that brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to have as well. And that love ought to be reflected in how we live and how we treat one another. The Apostle John, in John chapter 13, John chapter 13 Verse 31. Before I start reading in the wrong chapter, I'll turn the page. And when he had gone out, John chapter 13, verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, verse 34, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now listen to what John tells us in verse 35. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the image and the picture of brotherly love that we are to have. Love for one another. Our love for one another is to be clearly evident in our speech, in our conduct. We can see why Peter has placed this virtue as the main focus of this verse. For our like-mindedness and our compassion for one another becomes an easy task to pursue if our love for each other is genuine and active. To have like-mindedness with one another in the Lord, to have like-mindedness in the church, to have sympathy and compassion for one another in the church, which the other four virtues kind of encompass, these become easy to pursue if we have a genuine love for one another. If we have a genuine affection for one another as siblings, as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the pursuit of these other things becomes natural. This becomes our desire. The only hindrance is our flesh, is our selfishness, and how we respond to these things. So we must pursue these things for this reason. <clears throat> because as we pursue them, this will become more natural. And as we do that, our love for one another will be, uh, it will become bright in this world. And as John said, all people, will know that you are my disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So again, like-mindedness and compassion for one another become an easy task to pursue if our love for each other is genuine and active. The fourth virtue that Peter addresses, a tender heart. We are to have a tender heart And this one also correlates with sympathy or compassion. The root of the word translated here refers to one's internal organs and is sometimes translated as bowels or intestines. So what is Peter saying? We're to have tender intestines? What does this mean? The intestines are the bowels, what we consider the heart. We're not talking about the, a pump that pumps our blood a muscle that pumps our blood, but the innermost part of our being. And so when it was referred to as the bowels or intestines, what's being referred to is the innermost part of who we are. And this was often considered to be the seat of emotions. Thus, this term signifies a powerfully deep feeling. A powerfully deep feeling. In Ephesians chapter 4, turn with me if you have your Bibles open, Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Notice the contrast here. 
The works of the flesh, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. And Paul contrasts that in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So to be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, being kind to one another. If we have a tender heart, we are sensitive to the needs and the feelings of others. As one commentary notes, much like sympathetic, the expression uh, being uh, having a tender heart calls for being so affected by the pain of others as to feel it deeply, following the kind of tender-hearted compassion that God, through His Son, has for sinners. So when we think of a tender heart, when we think of the deep inner seat of the emotions within us, how is this expressed? It is where we feel the pain of others when someone else hurts. It is where we feel the joy of others when they are rejoicing. Where it becomes a genuine response and feeling that we have, not just a superficial response to fit in. We genuinely look at others and feel the pain that they endure or the joy that they are experiencing. A tender heart. The last virtue in this verse that Peter addresses, a humble mind. A humble mind. And this is the final virtue that he addresses, and much like the first, unity of mind, he is emphasizing again an attitude of the mind. In this case, humility. And a humility as exampled for us by Christ. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count each other's more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ himself sets the ultimate example of humility, and we are to follow suit in order, or in considering others, and their needs as more significant than our own. 
Christ did not consider his own well-being when he was persecuted and crucified. He humbled himself to the point of death. We are to humble ourselves. And humility, humility may be, MacArthur argues this, the humility may be the most essential, all-encompassing all virtue of the Christian life. The Scriptures are replete with examples of this. For the sake of time, we will only look at a few of them. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 12 and 13. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if any, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then the last reference I had here was in James chapter 4, verse 6. The latter part of verse 6. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A godly life then is exemplified through us when we as believers pursue unity, compassion, brotherly love, tenderness, and humility, as seen in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ought to be gracious to those in need of the gospel and sensitive to the pains and suffering of all those around us, especially to our own brothers and sisters in the church. And we must be careful when we look at these virtues to define them as the Word of God does to define them in such a way that the Word of God truly will transform us and sanctify us as we seek again to obey God's Word. Takes to the next point, verse 9, the contrast. Do not repay evil. This is again in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. And here we see the contrast. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. So after highlighting the positive godly virtues in verse 8, Peter addresses the negative in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. 
which would then indicate that these are behaviors of the world. These are not the behaviors of a child of God. These are not the behaviors that we are to follow or imitate, but we are not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But rather, these are the behaviors of the world around us. And as we read earlier in chapter 2, verse 1, Christians are to put off the behaviors of this world, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, as a result of our new life and identification as Christian exiles in this earthly realm. And likewise, we are to not respond or retaliate in a manner that the world does, evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Remember the example that Christ set for us. In chapter 2, verse 21, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him, who judges justly. These are the footsteps put in front of us to trace. Jesus Christ is the sovereign, all-powerful Son of God, could have destroyed his enemies in a single word. He could have killed them and destroyed them justly in a single word. But, During this time, he endured. He endured the mistreatment. He endured the reviling and the evil done against him to set an example for us as believers. Jesus submitted to those who were causing his suffering and even asked God to forgive them by entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He did not retaliate against them in a matter befitting this wicked world. He did not return the insults of the people or speak evil against them. And in the same manner, we as Christians are not to react in this way either. In fact, Peter here gives us the contrast to this sort of attitude. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. We are to bless rather than retaliation Christians are to respond to mistreatment and insults by giving a blessing instead, which means to give praise or to speak well of others. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.44 to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. This is an example of how we can bless those who do evil against us and revile us. An example that Jesus himself followed when he spoke the words of blessing from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Daniel Doriani notes on this uh, verse, Peter knows it is human nature to do the opposite. It is human nature to do the opposite. Repay injury for injury. Repay evil for evil. To return reviling with reviling. That is our human nature. Some people even seem to delight in taking offense, feeling wounded, and claiming victim status, even if there is no real harm. 
This is the weakness of our flesh. And brothers and sisters, this attitude ought not to be among you. Especially in the church among brothers and sisters. And before we are tempted to look at others and consider their failings in this area, we would all be well served in considering our own behavior when we feel slighted. The flesh desperately wants reason to be offended. The flesh desperately wants reason to revile and to return evil for evil, insult for evil. But this is an attitude that ought not be among us. This is something that we ought to put away and recognize it for what it is, part of our old sinful nature that is clinging for dear life. That Christ crucified on the cross. That Christ took on the cross and died for. So maybe a few questions we can ask. Do you take offense where none exists? Do you take offense where none exists so that you can harbor ill feelings toward others? Do you retaliate in like manner when offenses truly exist? There are times where we are truly offended and hurt. But how do we respond? Do we retaliate in like manner when offenses truly exist? These are the areas where the rubber meets the road, as we say. It is not enough to only believe these doctrines and instructions to be so, that we are to put off the things of the flesh, that we are not to return evil with evil, reviling for reviling. It is not enough to believe these doctrines and instructions to be so, but we must also live in accordance with them. With Christ as our example, we do not return evil for evil. With Christ as our example, we do not return reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, Peter says, bless. Bless those who curse us. We speak well of those who persecute us. We forgive those who sin against us because, as Peter continues in verse 9, to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. We are called to bless others so that we may obtain a blessing. See that condition there? Bless so that you brothers and sisters, can obtain a blessing from God. Those who bless others will receive a blessing from God. And Peter explains this in the next few verses in our text. In verses 10 through 12, and this portion I've titled The Context. Peter here gives us the context for this blessing and this is where he quotes Psalm chapter 34 that we read as our scripture reading this morning. In Psalm chapter 34, and he quotes verses 12 through 16. So in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 10 through 12. I should actually finish the last part of verse 9 to lead into that. To this you were called that you may obtain a blessing for He's joining these passages together. Four, and now he quotes the psalmist. 
Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter quotes Psalm chapter 34, verses 12 to 16. And this is, in fact, the second time that Peter quotes from Psalm 34. The other being in chapter 2, verse 3, when he quoted Psalm 34, verse 8. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good indicating his reference to those who know the Lord. True believers, people who are in Christ, who are genuine brothers and sisters in Christ, Peter uses this quote then to reinforce what he has just stated in verses 8 and 9. And he establishes a consistent pattern of expected godly virtues in the lives of God's children. When the psalmist wrote this passage, Many years before Peter was alive, the expectation was to live in a godly manner for God's people. Likewise, and especially maybe we could say more so now, that those who are in the church, who make up the church, have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 11, I believe it is, if you are a child of God, paraphrasing a bit, the very same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you and gives life to your mortal bodies. This is the Spirit that dwells in you as a child of God. The very same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in us. And so we see now why it is possible to give these instructions to those who are in the church, to those who are believers We have the Spirit of God giving life to our once dead bodies. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We could not keep God's law. We could not follow His commands, His ordinances. But because the Spirit's work in us has raised us to newness of life and given us a new heart, removed our heart of stone, a dead, inanimate object, and given us a heart of flesh, one that can grow, one that can learn, and one that is alive. Because of this, we can be instructed in this way. And we can see this pattern that Peter is following. This pattern of godly virtues that ought to be evident in our lives. Peter says in verse 10, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. His tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Peter is using a form of poetic parallelism here. And in Hebrew uh, poetry, in our poetry, we often, we we look at uh, rhymes. In Hebrew poetry, there's multiple forms, and one of them is what's known as parallelism, which, to be fair, also has multiple forms, but in this case, he's saying two, he's repeating two phrases. Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. They're essentially the same statement. So he's using repetitiveness through a form of parallelism 
and essentially saying, watch your speech. Mind your tongue. Watch what you say. We saw earlier that we are to bless those who do evil and revile against us. So how we speak is of utter importance to the Apostle. Therefore, to God as well. How you speak of others is extremely important to God. How we speak of others signifies if we are working through our flesh or through the Spirit. Listen to a few of these verses. You don't need to turn there. Proverbs 18.21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it, that it may give grace to those who hear. James chapter 3. This one, please turn to with me. James chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. James 3 verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brother, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The tongue can do a lot of damage. And this is something, according to what James says here, it is something that is untamable. 
We will all and have all, I would bet, failed many times in this area. So how do we respond? If someone calls you to repentance for your speech, are you willing and ready to repent? Or are you eager to defend yourself? That's just who I am. That is just how God made me. No. Brothers and sisters, that is the flesh. And the flesh that has been crucified with Christ on the cross. We are to watch our speech. And it is something that we will go from here and probably fail many times in. But please repent of those times each and every time and strive to walk in the Spirit in this way as we consider our speech. Watch your speech. Do not be dishonest in what you say about yourself or others. Watch your speech and let your speech be used for the building up of others. This is what we are to strive for. With honesty, using our speech to build each other up. It can be so easy to tear down. Intentionally or unintentionally. Our words matter. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we need accountability. (coughs) We need brothers to call us if we have spoken in a manner that was unbefitting of a believer. And we need to heed that and consider those things and repent of that. Peter continues in verse 11, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So in chapter 2, verse 1, Peter tells us to put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And here in our text this morning, he tells us not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, to bless. And then in verses 10 and 11, as we just read, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Remember the Apostle Paul's word in chapter 12 of Romans, verses 17 and 18? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Turn away from evil and do good. This is what Peter is saying, and this is what the psalmist is saying. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Here's why we are to turn from evil and do good. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Twice now, twice in a few verses, Peter addresses prayer. His ears are open to their prayer, speaking of the righteous. Only a few verses back in verse 7 of chapter 3, 
Husbands ought to treat their wives in a certain way. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. It is on the righteous, those who pursue the godly virtues in our text, those who turn from evil and pursue peace, on whom the Lord sets his eyes and finds favor and hears their prayers. Our lives and conduct matter so much to God that even our prayers are hindered or unheard if we do not seek and live to live a godly life. If we cast aside these things and pursue evil, our prayers are hindered. If we mistreat our spouse, our prayers are hindered. This is how important godly living is to the Lord. This is how important godliness is for a child of God. It does not benefit us to just be right in our doctrine but our lives must follow suit for a sincere submission to orthodoxy will produce a godly orthopraxy. It does not benefit us to just be right in our doctrine, but our lives must follow suit for a sincere submission to orthodoxy, which is right doctrine, right thinking, will produce a godly orthopraxy, which is right living, right practice. And as evidence in Paul's word when he writes to Titus in chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. So this is the grace of God that we boast of as believers that we have received as a free gift from God. The grace of God has appeared training us. It does not just save us. The grace of God trains us in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see, God cares about our souls. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sins so that we might be saved and that we might become children of God. But God cares about our sanctification as well. Our sins, Christ died for our sins, which includes the ones that we are going to commit today or tomorrow. And we praise Him for that. We praise Him in the confidence that we can have in that But brothers and sisters, consider the fact that the sins that we are to commit caused our Savior to die. And so let us not find comfort in those patterns. Let us seek to walk in a manner then that is befitting and worthy of someone who is a child of God, someone who has been washed by the blood of Christ and whose sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. To the depths of the sea, he has taken those sins and cast them out. And when we will stand before God in glory because of this, brothers and sisters, he will see not those sins, 
But if you are a child of Christ or a child of God, He will see the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ stand in your place. For Jesus took our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And in this righteousness, this grace that He has given us, we are, it is training us then to live in this manner, to live in a manner befitting of those who bear the title of a child of God. As we are adopted children into the family of God, and then we are to live and walk in such a manner, to speak in such a manner then that exemplifies the salvation that we profess. To pursue unity of mind, to have compassion and sympathy and a tender heart towards those who are hurting, and to have a brotherly, a mutual affection for each other because, brothers and sisters, it's in the term right there, we are family. And so obedience to God in daily life is the path to experiencing God's blessing. And by implication then, disobedience will lead to God's discipline. So we will fall. We will fail. As long as we are in this flesh, sin pursues us and often causes us to stumble and fall. God will often discipline us because of that, but never once will He hold those sins against us again. So therefore, God's discipline in this way ought not to be seen as a negative, but as part of His love and care as a father disciplines his child because he loves him. Likewise, God, with His perfect love, will discipline us to train us and to steer us to godliness so that our lives again may exemplify these virtues that He desires of us. And so in conclusion... As Christians today, as they did in Peter's day, we live in a hostile world that is set against God and His will. Therefore, we must strive to live godly lives. We live in a world where right is wrong and wrong is right and up is down. Men can choose to be women and women can choose to be men and the evil and the mutilation that these people will conduct in order to satiate these lusts of the flesh that they have. It is sickening, it is depraved, and it is a wicked, wicked world, and this is the world in which we live. It is set against God, it is set against His will. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we must strive to live godly lives in the face of persecution, suffering, trials, and all other contexts that we find ourselves in. Pursue godly living. Pursue a life of godly virtues. And as a church body, we pursue them together. We exhort one another. We encourage one another. We help each other in these areas. We actively pursue unity together in this. Sympathy, compassion, brotherly love, and peace with each other and those around us. And always let the love of Christ who died for you 
be evident in the godly conduct of your life and how you treat others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the ultimate price that you paid in dying for our sins to reconcile us to you. And God, we thank you for giving us your spirit and we know that it is by the power of your spirit that we are now able to be obedient to your word. And I pray that you would sanctify each one of us in in our ways, in our weaknesses, as we continue to strive together as a church body, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, as we continue to strive together to live a godly life. Give us the strength, the wisdom, and the power to do so, Lord, for your glory and for your honor. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.